following the story of two sisters and the generations they birthed. This week's book covers each woman's journey from the tribe of their birth to their children's lives and their children's children in America. Each new generation has new struggles, romances, passions, and pain. In the end, the sisters' families are united, brought home to the land and the water that bore them. The book is Homegoing by Yajasi, and you're listening to Lit Society. Let's, Let's get, get lit! lit! Hey y'all, this is Kari. And this is Alexis. And you're listening to Lit Society, a show about books and drama. Alexis, how are you today? Oh, good day. Good day. Yeah. Okay. Me yeah. too. It's good to see you. I wanted to, um, inspired by this week's book, I wanted to talk to you about family today in our theme of the week. And listeners, if you're familiar with our show, you know that each week we choose a theme to discuss based on the book we're reading. And this week's theme is how our ancestors affect who we are today. Mm. What do you think about that, Alexis? How do you think um, the generations that came before you in a very real way, I'm not talking philosophically, but in a very real way, how do you think they affect the woman you are today? Well, I mean, I only go far back to my grandmother, really. I didn't really know my um, great grandmother. I mean, I knew her a little bit. I got a picture of her in my mind, but. I, I think about some personality traits I got from my grandmother. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. We had a Stuff great like episode that. on um, nature versus nurture. I think that was the Trevor Noah book um, that yeah. we read, Born a Crime. Um, and one thing I discovered in the research for that episode was that you can pick up characteristics from um, people in your history, in your um, lineage, uh, generations back that you didn't even know. Um, right. I thought that was really interesting. And then in salt, fat, heat and acid, we talked about how our taste for different foods and different herbs is developed in the womb before we even develop a tongue. Right. So that I lives in our that. brain. <laughs> I thought that was cool. Um, and then, of course, uh, when we were reading uh, The Warmth of Other Suns, uh, we talked about who we knew, how far back we could trace our line and who we really right. knew in our family and why they um, immigrated really to the North. Well, there were three uh, different ways uh, that I uh, found in my own life and through research uh, for how our ancestors affect you and I today. And also you readers, of course. Um, The first is in our culture, of course, right? In the food we eat, the music we make and listen to and the art we produce. Um, And like we said, if your mother ate a lot of garlic, perhaps in her pregnancy, you might be have a predisposition to loving garlic. Um, It can be simple like that. But once you get generations and generations and hundreds and hundreds of years down the line, uh, it starts to become a cultural thing. This isn't just what you and your family do it's what the your culture does this is now part of your culture it's baked into who you are and it means that maybe you don't like garlic but your people do you know your people cook with it a lot right Um, right not only what we do within our homes that can kind of come out sometimes like uh, (laughs) 
This is weird, but you know, plastic bags under the sink. <laughs> oh, that's, <laughs> because I guess everybody don't have a collection of plastic bags. Yeah, <laughs> I don't they think sink. they do, but maybe they do. That's part but of Alexis's culture. I think it's a part of the culture. <laughs> I love it. Now, Alexis is a huge swimmer. She's like um, one class away from being a lifeguard, but uh-huh. I cannot swim. And it is a stereotype that black people cannot swim. I don't I'm not afraid of water. I just lack the ability. I've had multiple swim classes and passed them. Um, I think they were just tired of me trying. And it was like, before you die in my class, let me just pass you. Um, but I can't believe they would pass her. I she's just so can't. disgusted. She's so disgusted. Um, but uh, that stereotype comes from a lot of um, black families being denied access to public swimming pools where a lot of children learned how to swim uh, growing right. up, especially in a certain era. Um, and so because the swimming pool was not a safe place for black people, at least in this country, um, then a lot of black people may not have um, had that kind of recreational access to it. If they learned it was with a purpose. Um, So yeah, that's, that's interesting. That's how our culture can be affected and then affect us um, years. So I'm blaming basically my great, great grandmama for (laughs) me not being able to swim today, but I'm going to try again. Another way. Don't quit. Don't (laughs) Don't quit. (laughs) Another way that um, our ancestors affect who we are today, generational wealth. How do you think we're affected by generational wealth? And what does that even mean? Well, um, to me, generational wealth means some dollars have been passed down or it was accumulated earlier in the line and that could be shared. And that hasn't happened within the black community. So um, a lot is, you know, as common as it is in other cultures, it, it hasn't happened in the black community. Yeah. And even if um, a culture is oppressed, generational wealth can be not just money, but also opportunity. Um, so if you right. come from a culture where you were encouraged to um, be studious, for example, and you had access to um, resources to maybe get an education in law um, and then your you got an education in law, just like your grandfather did or your great great grandfather. Um, we right. live in a country where not everyone had access to the resources to even get that education. And so general wealth, generational wealth um, can be, uh, it's often um, defined as property, investments, money, or anything with a monetary value that you pass down from one generation to the next, a family home, um, family stocks and bonds, um, an estate, um, things of that nature, but it can also be opportunities. And Mm -hmm. um, as one generation is denied an opportunity, that doesn't just affect them. It affects their children. Uh, a book that comes to mind is uh, Sula, uh, where oh, yeah. all the black people were in the bottom. It was called yep. the bottom, but really it was the top. It was the less fertile land. And that's because generations down the line or in the past, that was the land that a free slave was given. And his lineage spread on that unproductive land on that unfertile land and mm-hmm. everyone was still affected by um, the stubbornness, the heat and the uh, depletion of resources in that soil. So um, yeah, that's, that's gener- another way that our ancestors affect who we are today, generational wealth. And then lastly, health and genetics. Um, how do you think our ancestors affect us when it comes to our health? 
well, diseases are, mm-hmm. um, you know, passed through the line. Yeah. And with uh, my culture, I often think of fibroids, um, even like high blood pressure, things like mm-hmm. that are um, found more in black patients as opposed to white patients. And it doesn't necessarily have to do with diet. Um, so uh, one uh, resource, the BBC, I found uh, a group of researchers had discovered that the Polynesians had a particularly high frequency of a variant of a gene called PPARGC1A that may be responsible for their high frequency of type 2 diabetes, at least in part. Um, I've read that before. So um, our ancestors can reveal themselves in our um lactose intolerance, how our body processes sugar, or again, our reproductive health, including um, fibroids and um, other things that black women often have to go through. Um, Another example can be uh, a distrust for the healthcare um, system. Most people are familiar with the Tuskegee experiment. Um, The study is perhaps the most enduring wound in American health science, according to The Atlantic, known officially as the Tuskegee study of untreated syphilis in the Negro male. The 40 year experiment run by the Public Health Service followed 600 rural black men in Alabama with syphilis over the course of their lives, injected them with syphilis, and then officials refused to tell patients their diagnosis, refused to treat them, and actively just studied what happened to them as if they were just rats. (laughs) And Mm. so um, whistleblowers brought an end to this experiment in 1972. um, And that actually benefited everyone, white and black, because from that um, came certain regulations as far as um, medical ethics, because people can't just be ethical. You have to tell them what ethical is, uh, apparently. (laughs) That's important. You do have to tell people what's ethical. Yeah, they won't know. They won't know you're not supposed to inflict people with disease and just study them like they rats. They won't know. Or just steal they sales, you know, that Mm -hmm. kind of thing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, But The Atlantic, which is a resource I love to um, dip into, It found that interestingly, the awareness of the study eroded trust in um, in the healthcare system for black people. And that affected people for generations down to this day. It meant that uh, one girl 30 years ago, her family would drive for miles just to go to a black dentist's house um, because they didn't trust the white dentist. That means her her teeth weren't as um, strong and as clean as they could have been because they didn't trust the system that had let them down so many times before Um, because they didn't have a lot of gas or time to just be going to the dentist all the time. Um, So usually you go only when something's wrong and only when it's too far along to help you at all. (laughs) So you're not getting um, routine care, you're getting emergent care. Mm hmm. Yeah. And we see that today uh, with the distrust of certain vaccines, not necessarily COVID-19, which is a very new vaccine, but even like flu shots. I don't really do flu shots and I be getting the flu. (laughs) I don't really do it. I I do get a flu shot. I do. I know you do. It's not about you. Um, (laughs) No, just kidding. Um, But the point is uh, that happened. To I mean, it happened to 600 men, but it also happened to their families and to the generations that came after them. Um, So those are just three ways that our ancestors affect who we are today. Number one in our culture, number two in generational wealth and three in our health. 
And then, you know, out, outside of that, so you say their family is affected. These men are going to the doctor. They're not being treated. And so you you come out of that with, well, why go to the doctor? They don't know nothing anyway. They might so make you, you sicker. Mm-hmm. And then I think of Henrietta Lacks, um, whose tissue was taken from her without her permission and used to treat people down to this day. (laughs) Studies are still being done on her tissue. So uh, there's not a great relationship there. Uh, The medical system hasn't been very kind to uh, people of our culture. So there's a lot of distrust there. Um, Yeah, but that's that's how our ancestors can. And what happened to them can affect us even to this day. Is there any more that you'd like to add? No, that's very interesting. Thanks for sharing that. Of course. Now let's get into our book. But first, let's take a quick break. You ready? Yep. and perhaps her motivation for homegoing. Okay, so yes, Yaa Jesse was born in Ghana. Her family moved to the U.S. in 1991. The family lived in Illinois and Tennessee before they settled in Huntsville, Alabama. Yaa has a bachelor's degree in English from Stanford and a, a master's in fine arts from the Iowa Writers Workshop. Um, the creative writing program that's through the University of Iowa. Kari, at least one of our previous authors is sure. a graduate of this distinguished program. Hey, Do you Kylie recall? Reed, we love you. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's Kylie Reed. Um, uh, yeah, recalls being shy as a child and she felt close to her brothers and books. And she received a certificate of achievement for um, signed by LeVar Burton for the <gasps> first story she wrote, which was submitted to the Reading Rainbow Young Writers and Illustrators Contest. And at the age of 17, after reading Toni Morrison's Song of Solomon, she decided to pursue writing as a career. In her second year of Stan- at Stanford, she received a fellowship given to sophomore students to complete a research or creative-based project the summer between sophomore and junior year. And she knew she wanted to do research for a novel, but it was going to be a different novel. But while she was there, while she was in Ghana, she took a tour of the Cape Coast Castle and mm. she learned that British soldiers who lived and worked in the castle would marry the local Ghanaian women. She had not heard that before and it fascinated her. And she wondered about the lives of those women and how they could walk around free above the captives. And it was the first time in her writing life that she felt a stroke of inspiration and she felt she wanted to write about it. So this book, Homegoing, is her debut novel. Unbelievable. And it was was completed in 2015. So after initial readings of the book, after being like passed around, she, um, according to Wikipedia, she accepted a seven-figure advance from a publisher. And this book has earned her several awards and honors. She wrote this book without an outline, but by using the family tree that's at Mm. the beginning. 
She said that this was the book she would have wanted to read as a child when she had questions about identity, race, and ethnicity. And that's what I have. I love it. Thank you so much. That is so inspiring to me. What a brilliant woman, though, obviously, um, to have developed this story just from the facts around this one castle, the wenches that lived at the top uh, versus the the cargo, the human cargo living in the bottom. Oh, in one building. Wow. 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 I just can't believe it. I also want to say, too, that um, our guest last week. Donnie Walton also is a graduate of the Iowa Writers Workshop. You know, that's where the writers be going to workshop. That's where they be going. (laughs) Okay. Well, thank you for that. So, Alexis, can you please give us a brief, spoiler-free synopsis of Homegoing by Yaa Jesse? Yeah, yeah. Homegoing takes us on a journey through the emerging generations of the half-sisters, Afia and Essie, as their lives take very different paths. Kari, who do you think would enjoy reading this book? Um, You know, The Wedding by um, Dorothy West comes to mind because it would follow the stories of people throughout a certain lineage and give them very, very well-rounded stories. Everyone gets a full developed um, story arc and uh, conclusion to their story. So if you're into that kind of epic novel just centered around one family, I think you'll love this. Now, Dorothy West's book is very um, condensed, concise, I'll say. but homegoing takes its time mm-hmm. and it really is. Um, it's not sparing anyone in the lineage and what they went through. Um, so, yeah, if you got if you got the time to really absorb a high quality story and to be inspired by great storytelling, this may be the book for you. And Alexis, what were your first thoughts of homegoing? Do you remember when you first heard about this book? It's not new. No, no. Um, I saw the cover before. And I did add it um, to my to be read list. Um, But somebody mentioned it to me a few, probably about two months ago. And I said, yes, I've been meaning to read that book. And so I pulled it out. But um, just that it was an intriguing story and that I wanted to dive into it. That was mostly what I remember about it. Well, since you want to dive in so badly, let's not waste any time. Please take it away with a spoiler-filled deep dive of homegoing. Before we begin, a brief content warning that matters of assault, including assault of the sexual nature, will be discussed briefly, as well as some themes um, surrounding slavery, which, of course, includes very uh, violent scenes. Alexis, the floor is yours. Thank you. Athea the Beauty. The night Afia was born, a fire raged through the woods just outside her father's compound. Afia's father was Kobe Acher. He left his first wife, Baba, with the new baby so he could survey the damage. Kobe had lost seven yams and he felt each loss as a blow to his own family. He knew then that the memory of the fire that burned, then fled, would haunt him, his children, and his children's children for as long as the line continued. When he returned to Baba, he told her, we shall never speak of this again. 
The villagers would say that the baby was born of the fire. And this was the reason that Baba had no milk. Afia was then nursed by the second wife, though that came with some challenges. Kobe would tell Baba to love the child, love Afia. But Baba could only dream of leaving the child in a dark forest for dead. Mm-hmm. When Afia was three, Baba had her first son and his name was Fifi. The first day Baba let Afia hold him, she accidentally dropped him. Baba beat Afia with a stick on her bare back. When Kobe came home to find his other wives attending to Afia's wound, he knew what had happened immediately, and he and Baba fought into the night. And from there, a cycle began. Baba beat Afia, Kobe beat Baba. Afia had the scars to prove it. However, her blossoming beauty made matters between her mother, Baba, worse. The men in the village lined up for Afia. They were constantly bringing gifts to the family. So the family profited from her beauty and her growing womanhood. The first time Afia saw a white man, he was to marry Adwa. Adwa was another young lady in the village. Afia asked, why would Adwa marry this man? Baba said, because her mother says so. Kobe asked Afia if she knew what had happened between Adwa and the white man. And Kobe explained that they traded with the white people and that eventually more white men would come to their village from Cape Coast and they would marry their women. But he had bigger plans for Afia. He wanted her to marry a man from their village. Go ahead. Yeah, he didn't want her to marry one of the white men that they traded with. And when she asked him, like, what do you trade? He was like, "Mm, let's keep walking. (laughs) Yeah, let's keep walking. (laughs) Afia, though, knew who her husband would be. It was Abeku Badu. He was next in line to be the village chief. He had visited their compound four times in the last month, and they had plans later in the week to share a meal. Abeku was the first man of all the suitors that came that her parents brought to meet her, and she wanted him to like her. After mm-hmm. dinner, Abeku said, let me know when she ready, okay? And Baba nodded. But that night she would visit Afia's room and tell her that when your blood come, don't tell nobody. Only tell me. We're going to hide it. Baba found out that you could get good money from marrying a white man and your daughter would have to stay at the castle. (laughs) Oh, you cut right to the chase. So when you're reading the book, you're like, why is her mother telling her this? Maybe she's trying to save her from marrying that old man. Like, Mm -hmm. finally, she's being a mom. Right. Uh, but no. So Baba just want to get rid of Afia forever. <laughs> forever. Because <laughs> she hated her so when, much. When Afia when told Baba her blood came, she told her to tell no one. She repeated that. Okay. So let's say mm. when Afia asked why, Baba reached into Afia's mouth, pulled out her tongue, pinching it with her fingernails and said, who are you to question me? 
And if you do not do what I say, I will make sure you never speak again. When Abeku became the chief, he wanted to do something big, something that would bring attention to their village and make them a force to be reckoned with. Abeku held a meeting with the men of the village that lasted a couple of days. And when the men returned, Kobe said, we will make the village rich with blood. Mm. Fifi was the youngest one at the meeting. He was already a fine warrior and everyone knew it. That night when they came home from the meeting, Afia asked Fifi what would happen. And Fifi told her, Abeku has made an alliance with one of the most powerful Ashanti villages. We will help them sell their slaves to the British. Because um, Afia's blood hadn't come or Kobe knew that Afia's blood wasn't there. He was checking every day to find out what would happen. And because he, um, it wasn't coming, you know, they got a little nervous. They, you know, wasn't sure what was going to happen. He felt like he was backing out of an agreement that he had with a bear coup. He would send Afia and Baba to um, a bear coup's compound every week. So just so he could remember how beautiful she was. Mm -hmm. There was one time when Kobe didn't send them, but Baba went anyway because she knew that the white men would be there. And when there, Afia's beauty caught the eye of one of the soldiers. Abeku had to tell the soldier Afia was not his wife. Afia wanted to speak up and to break her promise with Baba, but the men walked away. The man's name? James Collins. He was the newly appointed governor of the Cape Coast Castle. He came back to the village within the week to ask Baba for Afia's hand in marriage. Kobe was enraged. But Baba explained. She said, look, <laughs> Abeku can only marry her when her blood comes. But you know what? I think she's cursed. And from the fire, you know, like a demon who would never become a woman. Think about it. What creature is so beautiful that her beauty cannot be touched? All the signs of womanhood are there and yet still nothing. The white man can marry her regardless. He doesn't know where she is. Kobe thought about that. And he was like, all right, well, let's see if we can convince a bear to think that it was his idea. What Baba had learned is that the white men were willing to pay 30 pounds up front and 25 shillings a month in tradable goods for uh, to Baba for Afia as a bride gift. So Baba explained the theory to Abeku and he agreed and said, all the better for our business with them, all the better for our village. And Kobe wept openly. Mm. <laughs> After the agreement <laughs> to give Afia to the white man, Baba handed Afia a black stone pennant that shimmered as though coated in gold dust. Baba leaned in close and said, take this with you when you go, a piece of your mother. As Baba pulled away, Afia could see relief dancing behind her smile. Now, you would think this was a nice gesture, right, Kylie? <laughs> Yeah, for sure. Mm -hmm. That morning, Afia left the castle and Kobe knew that this was the dissolution and destruction of his family lineage. The premonition that he had the night of the fire would begin here. 
with his daughter and the white man. James, Afia's new husband, gave her a tour of the castle. And during the tour, she could feel a breeze at her feet from the small holes in the ground and Mm -hmm. the sound of faint crying. And she asked James if there were people down there. And James snatched her up and said, yeah. And Afia Mm -hmm. immediately started crying, screaming, in fact, and saying, how can you keep them down there? Crying. Mm -hmm. She said, Mm -hmm. Afia immediately started screaming and said, how could you keep them down there crying? You white people. My father warned me about your ways. Take me home. Take me home right now. And he covered her mouth. And he said, you want to go home? Your home is no better. Yeah. Afia remembered that her mo- her mother's joy at seeing her leave and knew James was right and she shouldn't go home. But Kari, <laughs> the, the, um, for him to say your home is no better, it didn't mean the same thing to him that it meant to her. Would you so agree? So he felt like um, what they were doing, this evilness in selling human bodies, they were just as guilty as the tribes that had sold those slaves to the British. Mm. However, <laughs> um, a lot of uh, civilizations had slaves. What this African slave trade was, was um, evil on another level mm-hmm. and that you stack people human live bodies on top of dead bodies where um, you're treating them actually like cargo only to shift them throw them overboard if they get sick assault them regularly uh, induce um, pregnancy and then throw their babies over uh, the the boat and then once they get to the land you actually tear them apart with two horses hang them on trees dissolve their families nothing like this was ever done (laughs) this was a new kind of crazy evil but Mm -hmm. he felt like well you sold me the slaves so you just as bad as us and hey uh beautiful afia you want to go back home they just as evil as us so just going up to the room you know we married now and so you know i was thinking he was talking living conditions her living nah. conditions were um not a, i didn't get that at all because okay. what nobody living like the cargo under the floor nobody Mm-mm. and even when they had clay floors they were sweeping them clay floors they were sweeping clay floors like she clean. was there um so she wasn't thinking that her her family was evil or anything evil behind that. She simply knew that she didn't wasn't getting love from a mother. And that's what she said. Yeah, no, her father loved her very much. Mm-hmm. And it seems like his other wives were kind to her. Um, and there's reasons why her mother hated her right or wrong, you know. So even her brother was like kind to her. So it was just her mom who didn't like her. Um, But this idea that there were crying bodies under the floor, crying out loud bodies. Um, Mm -hmm. She was like, you're evil. And he didn't know what she was saying necessarily because they were alone. I think at this point, the translator was gone. Um, So he's letting her know, you know, you mad about this. Well, your home ain't no better. They evil, too. So eventually, Afia had a comfortable routine with James. So she cried the first time um, James brought her a gift and he had taken the black stone pendant that Baba had given her and put a string on it so she could wear it around her neck. Afia didn't get pregnant immediately, so she thought she really was cursed. But after some time, she did indeed get pregnant. Mm 
Shortly thereafter, she learned that Colby had fallen ill and would die. Afia made the journey home back to see him. Baba was there. She didn't speak to her. She only led Afia to the room where her father lay dying. Fifi, her brother, stood beside him. And Afia began crying and shaking. Fifi told Afia he was the one who wrote to her. Baba did not want you to come. But Fifi felt she should see her father before he died. Fifi started to walk away from the room uh, and leave Afia with her father. Then he told her, Baba is not your mother. Our father had you by a house girl who ran away into the fire the night you were born. She is the one who left you that stone you wear around your neck. Kobe died. And Afia wanted to apologize to Baba for the burden her father made her carry. But before she could speak, Baba spit on the ground before Afia's feet and said, You are nothing from nowhere. No mother, now no father. What can grow from nothing? As she's pregnant, she's spitting at this girl telling her, You'll grow nothing. So this says a lot about Afia because once she realized that she was another woman's um, child and this is why her mother couldn't produce milk for her. This why this is part of the reason why her mother was so mean to her. There was forgiveness in her heart. Right. She wanted to forgive this lady. I was really wrapped up in this story because when the book starts, you think this is the book. And I'm all in like, oh, let's get to Afia. Now what's going to happen next with you, Afia? Nope. Let's talk about Essie. (laughs) Essie was born in a small village in the heart of the Ashanti nation. Her father, big man, had thrown a feast that lasted four nights. Her mother had so much joy. The entire ceremony, she kept repeating, you never know what could happen. Her mother, Mame, was the third wife of Big Man. He was called Big Man because he was the best warrior the Ashanti nation had ever seen. Essie was one of Big Man's 10 children. She is beautiful and she grew up in bliss. The villagers called her Ripe Mango because she was spoiled but still sweet. Oh, <laughs> Essie's mother had always refused a house girl or boy from among the prisoners. However, big man, her husband, had insisted. So one day, my man Essie would go to choose a house girl from among the prisoners. They chose a girl they would call Little Dove. Dove was horrible at chores, and my man wanted to return her, but big man was like, Return her where? Where? <laughs> Then he told her, there's only one way to train a slave, and that is through beatings, with a switch, actually, that they had passed down from generation to generation. That's how I was trained. Yeah. Mame <laughs> didn't want... <laughs> Just kidding. That's how you was trained. <laughs> Mame didn't want Big Man to beat Little Dove, so she told him she would do it herself. Big Man, however, put Little Dove to the test the next day. She said, he said, she needs to carry this water from this tree and back or to that tree and back. And if anything drop, if a drop of water drop, (laughs) she going to get beat. And he was going to be the one to do it. The next day, little Dove did the best she could. But when she was. Wait, but the whole family came out to jeer and to try to make her drop the water. This was terrible. Yeah, yeah, it was terrible. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. She 
almost made it. But then two drops dropped and big man had to beat her. He beat her. He did indeed. And Mame was heartbroken and was inconsolable because the mis- she felt like the mistake was so little. Little Dove didn't need to be beaten. As he mm-hmm. said, if big man didn't beat Little Dove, then everybody would think he was weak. Mm-hmm. Mame was so disappointed to hear Essie say that. She said that I should live to hear my own daughter speak like this. You want to know what weakness is? Weakness is treating someone as though they belong to you. Strength is knowing that everyone belongs to themselves. So this was a really interesting point because um, Essie is not a mean hearted child. She's just always pleased everyone. (laughs) So um, to her, it's very logical. Like, yeah, little dove got beat because daddy isn't weak. Yeah, that's like one plus one equals two. Mm -hmm. And her mother is teaching her uh, more than this this uh, culture that she's assumed. It's yeah, it's more like ethical. Yeah, ethical. Mm-hmm. And um, more emotional and, um, yeah, empathetic. Yeah. It's not just this and that. You yeah, exactly. It's not black and white. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Essie was hurt by her mother's words and her, the treatment she received from her mother. She was only saying what the other folks were saying. Essie's guilt would lead her to try to console Little Dove. Essie told Little Dove she was sorry for what happened, that her father was a good man. And Little Dove spit on the clay in front of Essie. Little Dove said, my father, too, is a big man. And now look at what I am. Mm -hmm. Look at what your mother was. Essie was like, wait, what? Huh? (laughs) Excuse me? Little Dove proceeded to tell Essie her mother was once a slave for a Fonte family. Her mother was raped by her master. You are not your mother's first daughter. There was one before you. And in my village, we have a saying about separated sisters. They are like a woman and her reflection doomed to stay on opposite sides of the pond. Essie wanted to hear more, but her mother came back in and told Essie to let little Dove sleep. Essie was ashamed. She could picture her mother behind the cage. In the months that followed, Essie would try to befriend Little Dove and get more information. But Dove said, look, girl, I ain't got no more information for you. (laughs) Essie would eventually ask Dove what she could do to make it up to her. And the Dove asked Essie to send a message to her father. And after many sleepless nights and deliberation. Kari, what would you do? Yeah, so little Dove was like, um, yeah, take this letter to my daddy. But what would even. you do? I would feel bad and I would take the letter. Like, what harm is in a letter? See, uh. I would bring down the whole tribe. <laughs> so Essie Can't sends me the message. Nothing. Once the task was complete, Dove said everything is equal. Essie mm-hmm. felt relieved. Yeah, little Dove was like, hey, don't even worry about it. Don't even. It's going to be fine. <laughs> <laughs> and after Y'all some want months, some more water, I'll go get some water. <laughs> after some months, Dove would get excited and repeatedly say, My father coming. My father is coming. My father is coming. He's coming. 
She was saying so much that they thought they she might like, be a huh? witch. And then Big right. Man said, I promise you, I promise you, I will slap the words out of your mouth if you keep saying that. She's like, okay, I won't say it. And she but he's still no coming, more. though. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so life went on as usual until one night. When Big Man was with Mame, they heard the sound that meant the enemy was upon them. Big Man jumped up and grabbed his machete and told Mame and Essie to go into the woods. Essie got her small knife and said to her mother, come on. But her mother didn't move. Mommy said she couldn't do it again. Little Dove, meanwhile, came back into the house and said, my father is here. I told you he was coming. <laughs> and she was dancing. And then she hurried up and scurried away. Essie could hear people screaming and children crying and people running. And mommy dropped a black stone glimmering with glow gold into Essie's hand and told her that she was saving it until her wedding day. I left one like this for your sister. I left it with Baba after I set the fire. Essie knew now that the story little Dove told was true. Her mother would not leave with her. Instead, Essie would leave and run, climb the tree as her father taught her until the enemy came. Captured, she would walk along with the other captives for days until they arrived at Afanti village. When they arrived, other captives started shouting, now knowing that the ear of someone who could understand them was available. Let us out! See, the Fontes and the Ashantis are fellow Akans. Two mm -hmm. peoples, two branches split from the same tree. But their cries went unanswered. Essie could hear someone say to Chief Abeku, we should not be doing this. Our Ashanti allies will be furious if they know we have worked with their enemies. The chief says, today their enemies pay more, Fifi. Tomorrow, if they pay more, we will work with them too. Hey, this. Fifi, that name is familiar. Okay, go ahead. This <laughs> is how you build a village. Mm. Yes, the name Fifi is indeed familiar. The first time Essie saw white people was when they came in to examine them as captives. Chief Abeku told Governor James that the Ashanti are very strong and you may check them yourself. As Fifi came to examine Essie, she spit in his face and she received a firm smack. Essie remembered the stone her mother gave her and she wanted to, you know, save it with her. So she swallowed it. Essie had been in a dungeon for weeks before she was raped by one mm. of the soldiers and returned to the dungeon. When the cycle of food and no food continued. So it was constantly happening. One day, Governor James walked into the dungeon, examined the women and selected women were being herded out of the dungeon. Essie turned to find the stone her mother gave her that she had hidden in the pile of feces. But they grabbed her and the soldiers marched them right out the door, right out the open door that led to sand and water. Before Essie left, Governor James looked at her and smiled. Kari, do you think Governor James recognized her face? 
Mm, I don't think so. I think he had some pity on her because I think he knew that she was assaulted too. Um, so the thing with this dungeon is imagine a basement full of boxes like you about to move and you just put one box on top of the other. They were doing that before the ships. So in the dungeon, while they're waiting for the ships, they're stacking um new bodies on top of older bodies some people have passed away um and so they're already being tortured they are sometimes fed they're sometimes not fed uh sometimes assaulted and i think that when james saw her i mean maybe he saw some of his wife so if you if you haven't uh, figured it out by now afia and essie are the sisters um, so, uh, Effia is the wench or slash wife that lives on the top floor and Essie is the slave now walking to the ship. And maybe that was even the voice that Effia heard, you know, we're not sure mm-hmm. about the timeline. Right. Um, but I thought the smile was supposed to be his way of showing some compassion, some mm. useless form of compassion. I don't know. Yeah. But there's a comment that goes after <clears throat> that. Um, Yeah. Mm-hmm. About it. That a e- smile from a white man e- equals like more pain to come. Yeah. So mm, let's talk about, let's go back to Afia's family line and talk mm-hmm. about her son. Her son with James, the child's name is Quay. Kari, can you give a brief overview of Quay's life? Yeah, Quay is very sheltered. Um, Afia, although, so these wives are not, so these men all have wives back in England. Um, They keep women that they marry in ceremonies in their church. um, And they use this as a form of trying to cleanse these women of these people. They're like, marrying me in this way is bringing you closer to God. So, you know, denounce your evil gods and um, live with me and my righteous God and we'll act very unrighteously together. (laughs) So um, so they treat these women like uh, wives and Effia and James are like Effia really does kind of love him. Um, But as the child's born and she's overprotective of him and um, James doesn't really agree with the way uh, Quay is being raised. And then um, it's discovered that Quay has um, affinity for like he's he's a homosexual. Um, So he's acting he's playing in a way that makes the father uncomfortable with like one of his friends. Mm -hmm. So the dad ships him off to England. Um, where he's educated um, and then brought back. And once he's once he went to England, like his dad died soon. And then um, when he was brought back, I don't even know if his mom was alive. Um, Yeah, she was still alive. She was still alive. Mm -hmm. And then um, the other British men are like, well, you can go into the tribe because you're like one of us and one of them. And you can be like our viceroy, our middleman. Um, to just watch everything that's going on and make sure everything's going on our way. So he still has never like found his place in the world. He's still just kind of out there. He he feels really lost inside. He, even though they look at him as a piece of both the British and the African, he feels neither. He feels like he's just him and he's just like all alone. And soon he'll he'll be married to someone that his family picks and he'll hate her guts. Mm. And they'll, <laughs> they'll have a son 
And okay, that son will be, okay, that's oh, enough. Sorry. You're you just talking about Quake. Thank you. Oh, okay. <laughs> so yeah, so Quay get married to a woman and he hate her guts. Yeah. So what happens? She hate with- his guts too. <laughs> Oh, okay. Okay. So <laughs> they hate um, each other. What happens is when Quay goes back to the village, he finds out that his uncle, Fifi, has a plan. And that plan Fifi is, is Fifi's half brother. Okay. Thanks. Uh, what did you say? I said Fifi is Fifi's half brother. Remember? Yeah. It's a lot of people, <laughs> but it's real easy to keep them straight when you're reading the book, just mm-hmm. so you know. It is, it is. Um, and it went at Fifi keeps calling Quay his son. He's like, well, why are you calling me son? He said, your sister's son is more important to you than even your own son. But Fifi knew that Quay was not his mother's daughter. Fifi aspired to be stronger and richer than the white men. And when Afia came back, for her father's funeral, Fifi's mother told him he owed Afia nothing. And for many years, he believed that. But as he got older and wiser, Fifi admits that he told the governor to give Quay the position in the village because he is supposed to leave all that he owns to him. He loved Afia as his sister once. So although he is not she wasn't, you know, a child of his They're mother. They're not close. He yeah. is the closest thing to a firstborn nephew that he has. So Fifi will give Quay all that he has. Fifi mm-hmm. intends to make up for all his mother's wrongdoing towards Afia. And Quay, as Kari mentioned, will marry the Ashanti king's daughter. And because of this, they will not be able to kill anyone in their village. So, Essie has a daughter, and her name Remember, is Remember, Essie is the other sister. Last time we saw her, she was born in a boat headed to the Americas. To the Americas. Ness is her name, and she was separated from Essie, possibly as a teenager, maybe about 15, and she has lived in at least two different plantations, on at least two different plantations. What Ness remembers of Essie is that she didn't tell happy stories and she was called frowny by the other enslaved people. The bedtime stories Essie would tell were never happy. She told stories of men being thrown from a big boat, men dying on top of you stacked 10 high and of the little dove who cursed her and leaving her without her mother's stone. Her current enslaver is Thomas Alice Stockman, and he seems to be a good master. He gave them breaks every three hours and allowed one mason jar full of water from the house slaves and the prior plantation was only described as hell. Ness was pretty enough to be in the home, in the house, but her scarred skin would keep her in the field. Ness was too pretty to be a field nigger. That's what Tom Allen said to her the day he'd taken her back to his plantation. He'd bought her on good faith from a friend of his in Jackson, Mississippi, who said she was one of the best field hands he'd ever seen, but to make quite sure to only use her in the field. Seeing her, light-skinned with kinked hair that raced down her back in search of her round shelf of buttocks, Tom Allen thought his friend must have made some kind of mistake. 
he pulled out the little outfit he liked for his house niggers to wear, a white button down with a boat neckline and cap sleeves, a long black skirt attached to a little black apron. He'd had Margaret take Ness into the back room so that she could change into it, and Ness had done what she was told. Margaret, seeing Ness all done up, clutched her hand to her heart and told Ness to wait there. Ness had to press her ear to the wall to hear what Margaret said. She ain't fit for the house, Margaret told Tom Allen. Well, let me see her, Margaret. I'm sure I can decide for myself whether or not somebody's fit to work in my own house. Now can't I? Yes, sir, Margaret said. I reckon you is, but it ain't something you gonna want to see. It's what I'm saying. Tom Allen laughed. His wife, Susan, came into the room and asked what all the fuss was about. Why, Margaret's got our new nigger locked up in the back and won't let us see her. Stop this nonsense now and go fetch her here. If Susan was like any of the other master's wives, she must have known that her husband's bringing a new nigger into the house meant she had better pay attention. In this and every other southern country, men's eyes and other body parts had been known to wander. Yes, Margaret, bring the girl so we can see her. Don't be silly about it. Margaret shrugged her shoulders and went back to the room, and Ness pulled her ear from the wall. Well, you best come out, was all Margaret said. And so Ness did. She walked out to her audience of two, her shoulders bared, as well as the bottom halves of her calves, and when Susan Stockham saw her, she fainted outright. It was all Tom Allen could do to catch his wife while shouting at Margaret to go change Ness at once. Margaret rushed her into the back room and left in search of field clothes, and Ness stood in the center of that room, running her hands along her body, reveling in her ugly nakedness. She knew it was the intricate scars on her bare shoulders that had alarmed them all, but the scars weren't just there. No, her scarred skin was like another body in and of itself, shaped like a man hugging her from behind with his arms hanging around her neck. They went up from her breasts, rounded the hills of her shoulders, and traveled the full proud length of her back. They licked the top of her buttocks before trailing away into nothing. Nessa's skin was no longer skin, really, more like the ghost of her past made seeable, physical. She didn't mind the reminder. Ness befriended a young enslaved girl named Pinky at the Stockman Plantation. Pinky's mother had died and Pinky hadn't spoken since. She also had the hiccups. One day, as Pinky was making her trips from the creek to the house, um, it was a day that she had overcome her hiccups. Um, and then while she was almost at the house, one of the Stockman children knocked over one of the buckets that was being carried and the water flew on to the Stockman children. Now the son, Tom Jr., and they're all about the same age, all these children, Pinky and Tom and his little sister, the Stockman children. Um, he insisted that Pinky apologize and Pinky opened her mouth to apologize, but no words came out. So Ness apologized for her. Tom Jr. insisted that I wasn't talking to you. I'm talking to Pinky and Pinky needs to open her mouth. And everybody said she don't speak. He mm -hmm. says she'll speak if I make her. Pinky, this is a child. This is a child. Mm -hmm. Pinky opened her mouth to apologize and only hiccups came out. Tom raised his hand to uh, hit Pinky 
who was crying. And as the cane was raised, Ness caught it, using Tom Jun- um, causing Tom Jr. to fall to the ground and even being dragged a little bit. And just then his father came out. And although another house slave saw the whole thing and was ready to defend Ness, the father hushed her and told Ness he would deal with her later. So the, he's kind of afraid of Ness, it seems, because she's so beautiful. She should be a house slave. But those welts on her back were so, um, so. Mm. Yeah. How do you describe that? They're <sighs> they're raised. This is they look like a person is on her back. Yeah. Yeah. When his wife first saw him, the slave owner's wife. She fainted. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's the kind of pain that Ness has been through. So um, the the owner is like, well, you seem like a good slave, but you got these welts on your back. So some about you must be evil because, you know, we don't just be beating people just because. Yeah, we don't do that. Mm -mm. So never one had ever seen Tom Allen do a public whipping before. Not like. Um, the ones they had seen on other plantations. He didn't have a stomach for it. He hated the sight of blood. So when he punished his slaves, he'd do it in private. So Nessie had to wait. Excuse me. So Ness had to wait. She hated waiting. And that evening when she closed her eyes, she would remember hell, the previous plantation. She remembered the violence. She remembered the man who was her husband. She remembered how their relationship budded. She remembered her baby boy, Kojo. She remembered Aku. The enslaved were allowed to go to church once a year on Easter Sunday. The walk was 15 miles to the Black Baptist Church on the edge of town. And without thinking, Ness began to sing a song her mother was seeing her in Twee. Aku recognized the language and responded to Ness, but Ness didn't understand. Aku said, so you are Shanti and you don't even know. Her accent was like her mother's. Aku was from Ashanti land and had been kept in the castle just like Essie before Essie was shipped out to the Caribbean and then to America. Aku offered to take Ness, Sam, and Joe away. They agreed and waited. Aku said the signal would be an old twee song sung softly in the woods. When the song came, it was spring and they headed out. They walked and climbed trees for days. One evening, Ness asked Aku to take Joe. Her back couldn't take it. The next morning, the dogs came and the devil waited until both Ness and Sam came down from the tree. The devil marched Sam and Ness back to hell and she told the devil the child was dead. Ness was beaten and Sam was hung. So that's how she got those welts on her back from this incident. And she's dreaming about it. Mm-hmm. <sighs> well, let's go back to Afia's son, a grandson, right? Let's jump mm-hmm. to grandson. This is Quay's son. Quay and his miserable wife. <laughs> the Ashanti princess. James. Kari, what named you, after his grandfather. The named British. after his grandfather. Mm-hmm. James's grandfather had died. Okay. Osu Bansu. Osi Bansu was the Ashanti king. James, his father, 
um, Quay and his mother, Nana Ya, were going to the funeral. The Ashanti said the British had killed their king to avenge one of the dead. James asked if it was true, and James knew the British had been inciting tribal wars for years, knowing that whatever captives were taken from these wars would be sold to them for trade. But instead of responding, the white man ignored him. James Richard Collins was to be the prince to the Akan people as well as to the whites. His parents' marriage was political only. He knew that they never loved each other. Their marriage was held together by duty, and his mother would often refer to Quay as a weak man. Fifi and Quay had chosen the woman James would marry, and her name was Ama Atta. She was the daughter of Chief Abeku's successor. It was the last thing that Fifi had promised himself he would fulfill for Quay and the realization of the for promise that Kobe Archer had made to Afia long ago, that her blood would be joined with the blood of the Fanchi royals. James was to marry her on his 15th, excuse me, on his 18th birthday, and she would be his first and most important wife. James knew Ama all his life, but as they got older, Ama started to get on his nerves and he was like, I could never love her. I really like you. <laughs> yeah. And I don't want a marriage like my parents' marriage. And I don't so want a do marriage like my parents' marriage. So I what? Fake my death. <laughs> okay, go ahead. So what happened, Kari? What happens next? Yeah. So James is one of my favorite characters because okay. he's very single minded in the way that he feels about life. He's like, hey, I got one of these so I can use it to please everybody else and live miserably like my parents or I can find a way to marry this girl I have met once and just, you know, her goats for a living instead of acting like a royal, being a royal. <laughs> um, so he came from something and he is like um, the Harry and he's like, I want to marry Meghan Markle. But what do I do? <laughs> So it turns out that there is a conflict where him and his posse are like killed, quote unquote, killed. But he ain't really dead. And someone recognized him as like the prince. And he's like, hey, hey, you awake? And James is like, yeah, I'm awake. He's like, good. I thought you was dead, but I didn't want you to be dead because I know who you are. And James is like, hey, between me and you, I'm dead, okay? And the man is like, what? And he, James is like, yeah, yeah. Tell everyone I'm dead. Bye. And James <laughs> runs away to marry the girl he loves and live a simple life on a farm. That's exactly what happens. <laughs> that's, that's exactly what happens. So let's jump back to Essie's life. And who was her, would it be her grandson? Who's her grandson? Kari. So I didn't understand how the boy. So remember, y'all, that Ness um, and her husband were trying to flee this plantation where they were treated so e evilly, um, if that's a word. Um, and then they were caught, the husband and wife. The husband's killed and the wife is um, whipped and eventually moved to another plantation. Well, her son made it. Um, someone took him and raised him as their own. Yes. Um, and the, and who, mm -hmm. the person who raised them is Ma Aku, which is the woman ah. who was in the tree with the baby and they continued on. So right. he doesn't remember his parents much, but Ma 
Aku has always cared for him and has told him stories about his parents. Joe had once been a slave um, when he was a baby and he got free papers. Now they're forged free papers, but he got free papers. Joe is Kojo Freeman. He lived in Baltimore. Joe is married to Anna and they have seven beautiful children. And they can't one stop is on having the kids. They they having so many kids, they started just naming them by the alphabet. And before the baby uh, would arrive, they would say, hey, baby H. Yeah, yeah. yeah we don't yeah. know what your name going to be, but it's going to start with an H because mm-hmm. we're going through the whole alphabet. The whole alphabet. And he alphabet. lived a simple life, but he loved it. He was an honest, hard worker. Um, You know, he lived in a home uh, where like uh, the homeowner, a white man was uh, as fair as you know, is expected around this time. It was an abolitionist. He he is an abolitionist. Mm -hmm. So he's against slavery. The homeowner is and his family. Yeah. But then at one point, the fugitive, a fugitive slave act passed. And that meant that whenever um, a black man on the street or a woman or a child were found, they could accuse them of being a runaway and they can, take them and send them back to who knows where. Um, so this is true. This incentivized uh, white people in the North to kidnap um, black people, like straight up the boogeyman to even come in a house, take them and sell them to people in the South and be applauded for it, applauded for it and praised by the law. Mm-hmm. And, and just say, Hey, I think they fugitive slaves. I don't know. Joe's family was impacted by that because it was going on in Baltimore where these kidnappings were taking place. And the homeowner is even like rush had Joe called from work. It's like, um, so the homeowner asked Joe's wife, hey, can you go get your husband? We want him to have a meeting with white people. And so they nervous because they like when white people want to meet with you, something bad going to happen. So Joe gets home and it's the homeowner and some of his friends. um, And they're like, we want to talk to you seriously because this act might pass. It hadn't even passed yet. And that could mean that y'all would be kidnapped. And y'all got a lot of kids and y'all love each other and stuff. So we... You know, I love having y'all as tenants, but we want y'all to go to Canada, okay? And Joe is like, how long I got to flee? <laughs> Can I live? Mm-mm. No, we're going to live. We're going to stay here and live. You know, I got papers. And the homeowner is like, yeah, but that ain't <laughs> real, though. <laughs> and Joe is like, ah, ah, ah. We're going to be fine. And my wife was born free, so she really ain't no problem. It's going to be fine. Yeah. So one day, Anna, his wife, didn't come home. He Joe ran to the room to see if maybe she had left her papers and the papers weren't there. Joe looked everywhere. He asked everyone, but no one has seen Anna since the morning. Joe let the abolitionist know and he started the search, another search, a search that a white man could start. Three weeks later, Joe learned that a white man was seen taking a pregnant woman into his carriage, saying she... You too pregnant to walk home. So he took her. They knew Anna was kidnapped. Ma'aku told Joe he would make it through this and reminded him that he was a Shanti. He comes from strong people who do not break. Well, 10 years passed. Joe never recovered from Anna being kidnapped. His children couldn't stand to be around him and he couldn't stand to be around them. So he would move to work, New York where there was talk of a civil war. Now, let's go back to Afia's family. Mm-hmm. Abena. 
Abena's kind of trifling. I'll tell it right quick. Yeah. So Abena is James and his wife's uh, daughter. James is really old now. He loves his wife, but they are old and their daughter ain't really amounted to nothing. Um, their daughter. <laughs> is it her? Is it her? Is that <laughs> uh, I don't know. I don't know. There's So there's this uh, man that she was childhood sweethearts with, their daughter. What's her daughter's name again? Abena. So Abena was childhood sweethearts with this man, but he won't marry her. And part of the reason is he kind of like she does everything a wife does anyway. So he ain't got to marry her because he getting the milk. Why marry the cow? You know how it go. But um, also it's because she's not very like favored in the village. People kind of look down on her. And so um, she decides, well, first of all, the village is like um, we've been having uh, no success with our crops and we've decided it's Abena's fault. So, Abena, you got to go. You're uh, banished. And then <laughs> um, <laughs> and then someone's like, hold on. That doesn't make sense. Also, um, let's see if she can. What is it? Get pregnant? So if while she's having this <laughs> adulterous affair, she yeah. doesn't have a child. Wait, wait. Let's talk about Abena right quick. Can she go to her boyfriend's house and speak to the wife and be like, hey, is your husband home? <laughs> That's wild. That's wild. He could marry her. He can have multiple wives. He just don't want to. Because he's, he's like, I'll marry you next that year. Their family is cursed. Everybody, yeah. every, the whole but village is concerned that their family is cursed because her father never produces anything, and they always asking to be help fed. Mm-hmm. And remember, her father was born royalty, and he left that life to live poor with this woman he fell in love with. And he actually seems fine with his choices. Mm-hmm. So it's just everyone else's problem because they got to eat. So he can't produce nothing. He was never raised. See, this is how your ancestors <laughs> affect you. He didn't know how to grow nothing. <laughs> That's what the slaves did. <laughs> so, you know, he's pretending to be a farmer. And it's a problem because you got to have skill to be a farmer. Mm-hmm. Who knew? So, um... Yeah, so um, the man, Abner's boyfriend, is like, I'll marry you when the crops start getting good. And I, I heard that there's this crop that um, does really well and we're all going to be rich. And then he goes to her hut and um, they have a night of passion and he looks really worried. And she's like, why are you worried? He's like, because I might be right. And this crop might be good and might be really successful. And the subtext is, and then I would have to marry you, I guess. And I don't really want to. That so the crop not is- the subtext. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> and so the crop is like cocoa beans. Yep. Coconuts. Cocoa beans. Coconuts? Cocoa okay, beans. Okay, cocoa beans. Hey, is like growing money. Mm-hmm. Okay, it's doing really well. Yeah. And so all the village is like, okay, well, your girlfriend pregnant. Abna's pregnant. So it's time to marry her because you we're all rich now. You're rich. They did the not good. know she was pregnant. Oh, they didn't know. They didn't well, they know. was like, go, but still, the this is shameful. Came, the crops came within seven years. So she didn't have to be outed. And yeah, banish it. But um, they also don't like this adulterous affair you having in the streets all up in the open, too. Mm-hmm. We're better than this. Marry her. And he's like, mm, I would. But I had promised somebody else I was going to marry them. So I'm not going to marry her. And so she's like, I'm pregnant. There's nothing here for me. I'm leaving and I'm going to just go live with the missionaries. But before, before she leaves, go mm-hmm. ahead. Her dad stops her. And he's like, first of all, yeah, just go because you ain't doing nothing anyway. <laughs> but first, 
I have something to give you. So he goes to the backyard, digs in the ground and brings up a beautiful black and gold stone. Whose stone was that? Afia's. You remember Essie's is still lost in the dungeon forever, her sister. Yeah. But Afia's is now around the neck of, what's her name? Abena. <laughs> she is forgettable, okay? Abena. <laughs> She's gone. And then I'm going to fast forward right quick. The missionary going to drown her. Oops. You don't learn that till later. Well, okay, go. why would you do that? <laughs> anyway. Come on, wrap it up. <laughs> It's a lot going on. It is. It's a lot going on. And every story pulls your heartstrings. I'm invested in all these people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you are seriously invested. Well, then let's talk about Essie's great-great-grandson, H. What you know about him? So remember, um, uh, what's the dad's name? Joe. Remember Joe? They was having so many kids. They would just give him an initial until they came and then they would give him a name. Well, remember, his wife was kidnapped when she was pregnant. So she called that baby H until she died. And she died angry and sad. Um, so H. Well, um, she committed suicide. Yeah, she took her own life. Mm-hmm. Um, so she was, again, kidnapped from Baltimore, brought to a plantation, took her own life. She did have H. And H grew up to be a shiftless nobody. So Shay <laughs> H... <laughs> H is a man who had one good thing in his life and that was a woman who was good to him and he cheated on her and called her somebody else's name. Hey, Mary Sue. And she was like, my name is not Mary Sue. And that was the last time he saw her and he really hated that because he's like, why am I shiftless? (laughs) Um, So anyway, he gets arrested and people could get arrested for anything. To give you an example, Mm -hmm. um, there is a coal mine where all the convicts have to work. There are white coal uh, white cons and black cons. The white cons are often murderers, um, really heinous crimes. And the one of the black cons did not stand aside to let a white woman pass the street. So he in there with the murderers. Mm-hmm. So that's that's his life now. They're breathing in soot, crawling in small holes. Children are in there losing their legs. And this is the start of the modern prison system where you have legal slavery um, under an incentivized prison system. So there's no reason to give you justice and make sure you're not thrown in prison for something you didn't do or a minor, um, I don't know, Anything, whatever crime. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it'd be better to just send you to prison so you can make money uh, for the corporations. So anyway, this is where it started. So they're all working in the coal mine, all the cons. H um, is so strong that he gets tied to um, a white prisoner. And the deal was if you didn't pick up your slack, you and the person you were tied to would get beat sometimes to death, Mm -hmm. oftentimes to death. So um, the white prisoner is crying. He's in a puddle of tears and he's like, I don't want to die. And if I do die, I don't want to die around all these Negroes. Mm -hmm. That's like his worst fear is to die around black people. It's crazy. So H is like, well, I'm not dying today. (laughs) So H does his work. Not today. (laughs) H does H's work and the white cons work. And the um, basically like prison guard is very impressed. Mm -hmm. Like, well done, boy. I've never seen that. You know, it's really sick. But the next day, H can't even move his arms. 
because he's been doing an excessive amount of work. Mm-hmm. Well, everyone pitches in because they love him so much and they do his work too. Yeah. So time passes. He works off whatever debt he owed society. And he's a free man, but he has nowhere to go because the one woman that was good to him, remember, he wasn't faithful to her. But he does have a friend, a friend. That friend is the one that was thrown in jail for not standing aside to let a white woman cross the street. That man has a good woman and literate children. And the children are like, well, you need to. Well, the the mom is like, you need to write that one good woman that you had loved at that one time. And my son can write this letter. Just keep it PG, okay? And my son will write the letter for you and find her so you can have a family because every man deserves somebody. And H is like, not me though, because I ain't really, I'm kind of shiftless. Well, time passes and he's like, I need that woman. <laughs> she really, he really realizes how much he loved her. It's not a superficial thing. So he goes to his friend's house, calls the friend's child and is like, I need you to write that letter. Time passes and the woman finds him. She, he comes home one day and his like door is open. And that woman is standing in there with skin that's black, like the coal that he used to mine for years, but soft to the touch. Mm. And as soon as she holds him, it's like water for a thirsting man. Beautiful. And yeah, they fall in love and they get married and they have a daughter. And on that note, we're going to jump back to Afia's great, great granddaughter. (laughs) And that is Akua. Akua has seen a white man swallowed alive by fire. And she would have these recurring nightmares where fire consumes everything. Remember, uh, her mom was the one that ran off to live with the missionaries because she really had no purpose in life. Yeah. The, (laughs) The fire was shaped like a woman holding two babies to the heart. And the fire woman would carry the babies into the woods and the babies would vanish. When her mother, Abana, died, she was only 15 years old. Um, Akua was only 15 years old at the time. And that was the first time she dreamed about fire. When her mother was pregnant, she went to the missionaries in Kumasi and Akua was raised by the missionaries. And since Akua had two children, Abi and Ama. The village um, went to war with the British. And when the men were at war, Akua's dreams got worse. Um, Her husband went to war um, also. Meanwhile, Akua was six months pregnant and was staring to the fire so frequently that her mother-in-law thought she was sick and sent her to the hut to be exiled. Akua would continue to have the nightmare about the woman talking to her, asking her where her children were. And where when um, she would try to leave the hut, the mother-in-law wouldn't let her. In fact, she put a guard at the door. When Akua wanted to marry her husband, the missionary tried to keep her from going. And then he told her about her mother. So this is a flashback. Yeah, there's a flashback. He told her that her mother wouldn't repent of her sins and didn't regret her actions. So after Akua was born, he took her mother to the water to be baptized and she didn't want to go. So he drowned her. And then buried her mother, Mm -hmm. burned her mother's body. So her husband returned from war. Now we're back to her present. Uh, Her husband returned from war and he returned with a missing leg. And Akua found it difficult to sleep um, because 
and it helped when she didn't sleep. Of course, she wasn't dreaming the fire dreams, but she was really having a hard time sleeping altogether. One evening, she found herself um, in dreamland. <laughs> and when she awoke, she was being a tied to the tree, the tree in which they had burned the white man. And Akua asked, please, brothers, tell me what is going on? And the men said, what kind of evil does not know itself? Her husband stepped forward and pleaded with the men. The men said, you would take sides with the woman who killed your children. And she's like, killed my children. Yeah. What? She thought she was in a dream that she was asleep. She must have been asleep. She must still be asleep. But her husband said, Yah is still alive. I grabbed him before he died, but I could not. I could only carry one. My son will need her. You cannot take her from me. And so they had cut a cool down from the tree. So the husband saved not only, so he had three children, two daughters and one youngest son. He could only with his one leg save the son from the fire that his wife had caused while she was sleepwalking. Um, but in that, that day, he not only saved his son, he also saved his wife because the villagers were going to kill him. Mm-hmm. And from then on, actually before then, they was calling her crazy lady. So this just justified her name. Like, mm. yeah, she's not she's not right. She's not right. Well, mm-hmm. let us jump back to Essie's great, great gut granddaughter <laughs> back in the Americas. And do you know about Willie? What do you know about Willie? Okay. I actually can't spend too much time on this story because it still gives me nightmares. Ooh. So I'm going to make it quick. Okay. So <clears throat> Willie is H's daughter. She's the apple of his eye. They treat her good. They give her the praise she needs to become a beautiful young lady. Um, she loves to sing. Um, and she falls in love with a boy her age when they are very young, like eight. And when she first saw him, her his eyes were a color that she couldn't even describe. And she goes, are you white? And he's like, my mama said, you know, the way our history is mixed up, all of us, that sometimes white features can just be shown in itself um, in the children. And, you know, you never know which one's going to look white. And Willie goes, that ain't right. so they have a little altercation these children and she pushes him and he forgives her and makes sure she don't get in trouble and from that moment on all you hear is willie and robert robert right Mm -hmm. willie and robert and people talk about them like they're the same person and in reality they almost are so they grow up dating before they even knew they was dating they get married and they have a baby (laughs) Um, eventually both of their parents die unfortunately and with nothing keeping them in the south they decide to join the great migration and migrate north toward Harlem Um, now Robert is trying to make something of himself and provide for his family Um, but it turns out, yeah, he he's passing. He looks white. He's not trying to pass. Is, but people yeah. are hiring him because he's intelligent um, and because they think he's white. They're like, oh, yeah, young man, you know, you well spoken. We got a job for you. And then he'll come around with his wife. And they're like, you married to a black woman? What is this abomination? <laughs> and then they're like, oh, you black. Oh, the job is filled. Go away. So he's being he's getting very discouraged. Willie wants to sing in like some jazz hall, but she ends up having to clean it because she's so dark and they only want light skinned singers. 
It turns out one day, um, as they're drifting apart, by the way, because Robert stops bringing her around, um, even though he loves her, you know, he's supposed to, they start living separate lives because he's passing in the North, which is something I never thought about until this book, but definitely did happen. Um, so he's passing during the day and then coming home to his black family at night. Well, one day she's told, go clean up the vomit in the bathroom. When she um, enters the bathroom, she knocks pushes the door in and the man's still in there. She's like, oh, I'm sorry. And so she's walking out and he goes, Willie. And it what shook her the most is that she didn't recognize him. Mm-hmm. It's her husband, Robert. Then two white men walk in. They realize that the robber they know is actually a black man. Um, and then they start to realize that Willie is his girl. So they um, uh, tell them to commit a sexual act. And Robert does it so that they don't kill her or him or rape her. And um, when they're done and the white men leave the room, Robert says, I'll be gone by tonight. And Willie didn't have the heart to tell him, you've been gone for months. Mm. So she's walking with her little son um, and they used to like to walk in the street. And so she's walking up north. And one day she's walking and she sees a man bending down. Um, at the foot of his blonde wife to their talking to their child. And it's Robert. He's passing on the other side of the street, basically. Mm. Um, and she looks at him and smiles because she forgives him. He sees her. She sees him. And she turns around and goes back to the black side of uh, New York with her son. She eventually starts to date a poet. He's shiftless. Um, and her son gets hooked on smack. Oh. So her son, uh, do I have to stop? See, you be all up in these stories. No. <laughs> now we got to go to the other sister you family gotta line. Go. We got to go back to y'all. Y'all. Who is Afia's great, great, great grandson. This was the child that was caught up in the fire, saved from the fire. He became a teacher and a writer. He wanted to publish a, a book that really captured the attention of his readers and moved them to think and act. And so he was um, a teacher at a Roman Catholic school and he taught history and he was working on this book. And then his best friend was a man named Edward, who was also a fellow teacher. Now, y'all is not married. His wife, Edward, his friend has a wife and she wants to find him a wife, but he's like, he's not interested in that. And part of that is like he has this huge scar from the fire. He's like, no one's going to want me. So I don't want to be wanting anyone who won't want me. So I'll just live my studious life. Yeah. And so that's what he does. And eventually his best friend Edward joins this political group. And he's like, well, I'm not joining that. And so he's not going over to their house as much anymore to be fed. So now he's got to stick around at home. So he hires someone to work for him. And the woman comes in and she starts working and she's thinking she has to speak to him in English all the time. But he's like, no, speak to me in Twee. Don't you speak Twee? But the woman was like, her sister told her that she had to speak English to him because he was, you know, a teacher. And y'all always felt like people were was afraid of him because of the scar on his face. 
But the woman who came to help, her name is Esther. She wasn't afraid of that. Her concern was more about their class distinctions, their class differences and the fact that she wasn't educated and he was his teacher and she needed to speak English. Well, anyways, she works for him for a number of years before he realizes that he is in love with her. And over the years, she's talking to him and pulling him out of himself <laughs> and event and encourages him to go see his mother because he told Esther that his mother was the one that caused his wound. Um, and Esther felt like you really need to forgive your mother. You need to go home and forgive her. Well, anyway, they go to see his mom. They go to see his mom and and they she lives now in Ejiso. And so when they get there, they're not married, but they're traveling together, which is really. And everyone assumes they are because they're traveling together, like you said. Yeah. But when people, when they get there, people notice Yah because of his scar. They know the family. They know the story. It's a story that's gone on long enough. So when he gets there to visit his mother, everybody like, oh, you're here to see crazy. Uh, <laughs> not crazy lady. Uh, what's her name? And people got to think real hard because they don't want to insult y'all, but they ain't never really called that woman by her Anything name. Anything but crazy lady. That's the only name mm-hmm. that have, they've called her is crazy lady. They know no other And there's name. a cute scene. There's a cute scene where Esther got to check everybody. Mm-hmm. So it's obvious she loves him too. But right now she really is acting like his assistant. Yeah. Basically. So every. Um, okay. So they eventually go and see his mom. He, he saw his mother. They cry together for a long time. And then he asks her for the story of how he got his scar. And she tells him, How can I tell the story of your scar without first telling you the story of my dreams? How can I talk about my dreams without talking about my family, our family? And then she tells him, I can't forgive myself for what I've done. I won't. I'm sorry you've suffered. I'm sorry for the way your suffering casts a shadow over your life, over the woman you have yet to marry, the children you have yet to have. No one forgets that they were once captive, even if they are now free. But still, yeah, you have to let yourself be free and be free, yeah, be free. And their daughter is Marjorie. <laughs> Kari, do you want to wrap up the African the family story, story? The whole story? The, the Marjorie so listen, story. Because we No, st- I'm finishing both of them. Here we go. <laughs> So Marjorie is a very studious student. Uh, She's brilliant, hardworking, loves books, loves to read. But the kids at school tease her. And even the black kids, they're like, you're not black like us. And she's like, I knew that. You know, I know where I'm from. My family, (laughs) Ghanaian. And so anyway, she starts to have lunch with the teachers so that she won't be teased all day. She forms this uh, bond with a German boy with these deep blue eyes and blonde hair. He kisses her and then goes to the prom with the brunette because that's what all the adults want him to do. But he calls her. He's like, hey, I really want to take you because I love you. But, you know, whatever. And so she's like, fine. And she goes back on the couch and hangs out with her parents who she loves and they love each other. And it's a perfect family. Although her dad is like old as dirt because it took him forever to start his life because he was always hindered by this guy. Yeah. Anyway, remember, um. 
Joe's son H <laughs> had a son, wait what happened <laughs> had a daughter named Willie Willie had a son with a man who left her to pass for white well that son ended up on smack but she sits down with him and she because he used to be part of like the NAACP and he would be marching in the streets and stuff and she was like you think you marched I came all the way from the South. How you think we got here? We was marching. Okay. And what I fought for, since you don't think I fought for anything, I fought for you. And you can either go be on smack and live in dope houses, or you can stay and raise your children. Because mm. he got like three kids by three women. And he only want to see one of them again. And she married to somebody else living a good life. So he ends up having a baby with a crackhead. She's not a crackhead, but she is. She is a so, crackhead. <laughs> no, her thing's heroin, but that's fine. So um, she he decides, I'm turning my life around. And it's a step-by-step process, but he does the work. Him and his son um, live on his mother's floor. His son ends up... His son is Marcus, and he's quite intelligent. We ain't ready yet for the names. It's too many. T- it's too many. <laughs> he's not just intelligent. His son is a hard worker also. Ends up going to PhD. Yes, yes. So he's in grad school, his son. So are you following? (laughs) His dad that once was on smack is living each day in the best way. Okay, Mm -hmm. it's a day-to-day process when you used to be on drugs. So he's doing the work and he's drug-free and he's handling his responsibilities. And he's, by all accounts, a good man. Well, his son is now in grad school. He's like, wow, I came a long way from sleeping on my grandma's floor. Um, But he's got a friend who's like kind of (laughs) hood. And every other week, he like Tupac, basically. Because the friend is like very thuggish, but also about that poetry and and that art. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) so every week marcus is his name as alexis spoiled his friend come around is like oh you gotta meet this girl and marcus is like oh another girl i'm madly in love get ready because we gonna get married this is the thuggish friend who's just love he loves being in love so they go to meet the latest girl that the friend is that tupac is in love with and standing next to the friend that tupac is in love with is who Marjorie. Marjorie. And once Marcus sees Marjorie, it's a wrap. So they start courting. And I don't think they're <laughs> courting. Yeah, they are. It's fine. <laughs> they're friends, right? But they're like in love with each other. And they're they're love each other like in the real way where they talk for hours and they talk about science and art and um who they are and their family history, not knowing. That way back in their lineage, our sisters, Mm -hmm. the sisters we started the book with. Marcus is like, I ain't never been south of 27th Street or whatever. (laughs) And so she's like, let's go to Ghana. And so they go. And um, one of the tours that is being pitched to them once they get to the airport is like, come see the castle where the slaves were shipped off to the Americas. And he's asking Marjorie, like, have you ever done that? And she's like, no, that's something that like blacks come to do when they visit. You know what I mean? (laughs) And so it's like an awkward beat. And then she's like, but we could go. (laughs) And so he's like, yeah, let's go. Um, So they go and they don't know that they're standing in the spot in the in the castle 
where their ancestors um, stood, one above ground. Literally, one above and and one one in the dungeon. And around Marjorie's neck is this beautiful black stone. She doesn't know that the matching stone is somewhere probably still in the dungeon. Mm -hmm. Um, Anyway, they each um, know each other so well, Marjorie and Marcus, and they've talked about their greatest fears in life. Her greatest fear is fire. Fire. Mm -hmm. You remember her dad was um, almost taken from her before she was even born by that fire that her grandma um, started. And by the way, her grandma was her best friend and the only person who really knew her. They were very close until she died. And remember, her grandma's crazy lady. So crazy lady formed a great bond with her granddaughter um, before she died. So anyway. They're still in Ghana. They've toured the castle. Um, there's this great big fire that um, some fishermen have started right by the water. And water is Marcus's biggest fear. Um, and he used to hear that that's because like all your ancestors is buried on the bottom of the ocean floor. And that's why we don't swim. And he was like, that, you know, that don't really make sense. I don't know, <laughs> but I don't swim. And so she like pushes him to swim past the fire. They go and... Uh, yeah, and then she goes, welcome home. The end. Let's take a quick break. It's beautiful, yeah. Okay. Thank you, because that could have went out. I told you, I there was no end. It's a lot. We almost two hours I in. I know. Oh, go ahead. And we're back, y'all. I know that was long. I know it was, but it's a lot in this story. It's a lot. Kari, why don't you tell us what your final verdict is and whether or not you will recommend this book? Well, I just want to say you did a great job and there was really no story that you could cut down or can be economical with. You had to tell it. Because it's so captivating. So um, kudos to you. You did fantastic. And um, when I had finished this book, I thought, how many books of an author do you have to read before you start calling them your favorite author? Because I hope it's just one. Because I really love you, Yajasi. And I feel like your storytelling skill is superb. It's a gift. It's something that cannot even be taught. It's something that must just live in you. I want to see what you were just writing in your scrapbook when you were 12, because I'm sure it'll blow my mind. This was an amazing book. I guess it's only 300 pages. I said before that (laughs) I said before that The Wedding by Dorothy West is a short book. This is a real, this is an epic novel. They're like the same size. (laughs) Are they really? Oh my God. It's only like 305 pages in this book. Not a word was wasted. Oh my Uh, goodness. This is this is a true novel. This is the quintessential novel for me. Um, it is one of the best books I've ever read. For me, it's Homegoing by Yad Jassy and Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy <laughs> in that order. I can't wait to read this book again. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, uh, what can I say about this book? Uh it was uh, life changing. Sometimes I was reading it and I had to go, wow, I'm really reading this. <laughs> wow. I was really given the opportunity to read this book and I'm reading it. 
this is really happening. Wow. I was so excited. It's so cool. Uh, how you follow these, the, the lineage of these two sisters, how it was set up, stacked on top of each other, just like those uh, bodies in the dungeon, but how everybody held a story. It made me think of the lives that are affected by one act. Mm -hmm. And when that one act goes on for hundreds of years, how it just, creates this ripple effect through time mm -hmm. and time is just constantly moving no matter what's going on in the world time will progress and um it carries like actual blood and bones with it there are people people that are the casualties of history and um and those people are you and me you know yeah uh because they're they're the family that that birthed us so and we're still living their story. Anyway, great book. Five stars. Tell everyone. It's great. Everyone needs to read this. Uh, what about you, Alexis? What were your thoughts of this book? Would you recommend it? What's your final verdict? And thank you, by the way, for recommending <laughs> it to me. I loved this book. I, there are so many moments in here where tears were shed for me. And I, I've not read many books where tears came out. But this book here, yes, indeed. I felt every moment of it. All the stories, you're pulled into them. I couldn't wait to get I, I wanted her to separate them so I could read them straight through, but yeah. it was okay. It wasn't a problem mm -hmm. flip-flopping between the two. I probably needed that break but did I? I got to think about that. <laughs> but anyway, I love I absolutely loved this book. I loved her storytelling. Her stories are so detailed and just the weave of that um, black black um, stone all the way through the fire oh. all the way through the water mm -hmm. all the way through. Mm -hmm. The stories are told in um, such great detail. I felt like this was a 600 page book. I, I, I really <laughs> did. I mean, it's not in a bad way, not at all in a bad way, because yeah. there's so much. It's so rich with information, mm -hmm. so rich with detail. And um, it you're just drawn in all the way. And I just I, I've read it twice already. And I and I look forward to having <gasps> wow. a physical book in my hand. I did have the Kindle. It's not the same. Mm -hmm. I want yeah, that. You don't book. believe in ebooks. Yeah, I want one too. I'm going to order um, this book. Although I have the audio, I'm ordering a physical book. Yeah. Today or tomorrow from my local bookstore. Yeah, um, just fantastic. I, I, it made me think how there are authors, and I feel like I can throw him under the bus, like Dan Brown, who <laughs> contrive these cliffhangers at the end of every chapter. And some of them you care about, some you don't. Um, but the, urging of the author to draw you into the story it's almost needy like thirsty with ya jossi home going every story i was so into it that when i got plucked out i begrudgingly went into the next story but then was so into just that to i be was drawn like oh man back great in. just to be <laughs> drawn back in yeah and, and i don't know if there's a cliff one cliffhanger in this book you know what if you know history you know what's gonna <laughs> exactly. happen but their stories their stories are so fantastic oh so good yeah i loved it and would definitely recommend it well alexis thank you again for choosing this week's book what are we reading next week their eyes were watching god Okay. 
Just one note here. Um, a lot of us have read this book, whether in school or otherwise. Their Eyes Were Watching God by Zora Neale Hurston. But I also recommend listening to the audio version narrated by Ruby D. Mm. She is amazing. Um, highly recommend. But anyway, that's next week's book. Their Eyes Were Watching God by Zora Neale Hurston. Thank you all for listening to Lit Society. We'll see you next Thursday. Lit Society is brought to you by Alexis Anaria and Kari Herrera. Support the cause by leaving a five-star review for our show on Apple Podcasts, along with a comment about why you absolutely love us. We love you too. Please also, if you listen on Spotify, take a second to give us five stars on Spotify. If you've enjoyed what you just heard, tell a friend about Lit Society. Visit LitSocietyPod.com for show notes, this month's book list, and to sign up for our amazing email newsletter. And until next time, you guys. Read read something. Something.